Hello and welcome to the EOISS podcast, a conversation on foreign policy. My name is Florence Gaub. I'm the deputy director of the EOISS and the host of the show. And with me today is Gustav Lindstrom, the director of the EOISS. Welcome, Gustav. Thank you, Florence. And great to be here on this very timely discussion. So today is the first episode of our mini-series on strategy. Now, strategy is not foresight. That's one of the reasons we're having this conversation, because we want to explain, actually, in the next three episodes, what it is. Gustav, we hear the term strategy all the time. It is thrown around. Mostly, we quote very famous people like Sun Tzu, von Clausewitz, Machiavelli. But what actually is strategy in most simple terms? Can you remind us what that is? Sure. And to start off, you're absolutely right that we tend to use this word very liberally. And sometimes we fail to recognize that to do strategy well, you actually have to have three components to make sure that this is something that will be functional. And let me just go through those three components very briefly. But needless to say, number one, you need to identify the strategic objectives or goals that you would like to reach. And this is oftentimes summarized as the ends. Number two, it's not simply enough to have the goals and ends, but you have to identify the resources available to reach those objectives or goals. And this is many times thought of as the means. And then finally, the third component, and this is where things can get quite tricky, is that we have to recognize how the resources will be applied to reach the identified goals and objectives. And this is oftentimes summarized as the ways. And I think maybe the final point, Florence, is that let's remember that there are many documents that have the word strategy or strategic in them, but there are also other documents that strive to be strategies and don't have the word in the title. And here, of course, you can think of things such as white books or other security concepts that sometimes are published by organizations or by countries. So this is an important reminder because I think people forget that strategy is the response to restricted resources. So if we had unlimited resources, we wouldn't need to have a strategy in that sense. But it's also connected to a goal. So when you look up the dictionary, it actually says strategy is the art and science of adjusting these three elements. And I think the term, the word art here is important because it shows that there is a creative element and it's something that we can't quite put the finger on it, which is perhaps why it's so difficult for us to define it. Now, the EU has engaged in strategic thinking across a number of areas and over a number of years. But when it comes to security, the starting point was actually 2003, the European security strategy. In what way and why was 2003 a turning point for the EU when it comes to strategic thinking, especially when it comes to security matters? Yes, we have to uh, put ourselves back in 2003 and remind ourselves that at that time, of course, there was a lot of reflection and discussions and also disagreements on developments with respect to Iraq, where, of course, EU member states had had very different opinions as to whether or not there was a need to go into Iraq. And we also should remember that the Bush administration at that time had relatively recently come out with its own national security strategy, which had some very key elements there to which probably the EU wanted to respond. And what better way than its own security strategy? So indeed, in December of that year, for the first time, 
EU policymakers were able to start a process for the first time from very informal discussions held at the foreign minister's level in Castellariso in May of that year to the creation of small working groups, close contacts between the policy units and the member states, the use of workshops to discuss the content of such a strategy that were held in Rome, Paris, and Stockholm. It was very interesting because it engaged thinkers and analysts from outside of the EU. And I recall that the EUSS was quite engaged in those workshops as organizing body. And of course, at the end of the day, this was adopted by the heads of state and government through a European Council meeting in December of that year. But for the first time, unlike previous times, the EU had the ability to come up with a short list of key threats. There were five identified, terrorism, WMD proliferation, regional conflicts, state failure, and organized crime, as well as a number of global challenges. Before that, any such attempts would have been very difficult and would mainly be the amalgamation of a long list of threats that would be presented by uh, member states. This time, we were able to consolidate that into one document. It was actually a big step forward. If I understand you correctly, we had a, a context that was highly tense, a bit like today, and provided input for common reflection. So that in that way, it's a little similar to the situation that we're in as we talk about the strategic compass, but we'll, we'll come to that later. The European security strategy, of course, was not the only strategy. It was perhaps the first one in this regard. What other strategies followed that were perhaps deducted or from it or, or created other key milestones? Which ones are those that you think are the most important ones? Do they actually fall into your own definition of strategy respecting the triad you mentioned, means, ways, and ends? I should say from the outset that it's very difficult to achieve a strategy that can be effective at covering those three elements. Usually, you will see a much stronger capacity to identify the strategic objectives or goals, it will be much more difficult to recognize the resources available to reach those goals, and even more complex to link how those resources will be applied. So I would say for many of the strategies, this would be an unbalanced kind of element where you will have stronger performance in one of the categories. But if we look ahead to these milestones, there were definitely milestones since 2003. And what is interesting is that those milestones many times are following directly as a result of what came out of the European security strategy. So just to give some more details on this, as a follow-on to the European security strategy, policymakers identified five areas for additional work. And this was, for example, the proliferation of WMD, the fight against terrorism, moving forward with effective multilateralism, a strategy towards the Middle East, and comprehensive policy towards Bosnia and Herzegovina. This, in turn, was also a starting point for a number of other follow-on strategies that were much more specific. And this is actually a good thing, because if you think about it, the more general strategy should open the door to more specific follow-on strategies. And there is a long list of such strategies. I will not go into them, but we can recall, just to give some examples, just shortly after the European security strategy, there were strategies on cyber, 
also geographically focused strategies, for example, the EU strategy for the Gulf of Guinea, strategies to combat the illicit accumulation and trafficking of small arms and light weapons. There was also the internal security strategy that came out in 2010. Now, if we move beyond that, I think one of the other key elements to recognize was that in December of 2008, there was a report on the implementation of the European security strategy. And this is very interesting because after five years, policymakers wanted to see if the ESS was still valid. And that exercise confirmed that the ESS was still valid, but it needed some updates. So it included some additional threats, and it also recognized some new areas for greater focus. And if we move forward, that gives a very good anchoring to the next big milestone, which was the EU global strategy that came out in June 2016. And again, let's go back to that moment in June 2016. It's a couple of days after the Brexit vote. The EU is in a rather delicate situation, and there has been a lot of work in the preceding year to do a horizon scanning exercise to understand where such a strategy would go. And this is really the moment where the EU then takes the next step and has this EUGS as the follow-on to the European security strategy. And again, there's an indication of shared interests and principles. There's an introduction to the idea of strategic autonomy. There's discussions of resources. There's a discussion on basically shared interests and principles. So it is a direct follow-on to the ESS and also opens the door to the next milestone, which would be the Security and Defense Implementation Plan of November 2016, which again gives more meat to the EU global security strategy by providing greater details on what is necessary for the EU to really achieve the ambitions. These ambitions being responding to external conflicts and crises when they arise, building the capacities of partners, and protecting the European Union and its citizens through external action. And now we're looking at the strategic compass, but I will not go into that at this stage. If we understand strategy to be a concept that helps us balance what we want with how we're going to get it and with what means, and of course you mentioned these milestones, there are of course a lot of other smaller stones, so to speak. You have the Central Asia strategy, the connectivity strategy, the Iraq strategy, I mean, there's there's a whole list. You hinted at the context being important because if you look at the European security strategy of 2003, a lot of people have made fun of the fact that it starts by saying never has Europe been so prosperous and free and surrounded by friends, which today is no longer the case. I think they misunderstand that strategy is not foresight. This is why we're having this conversation also on this podcast. It's much more about the situation that you're in today and you formulate what you want rather than what you think is going to happen in the future, if I understand that correctly, which is also why the global strategy is more about the context than about, you know, is it still going to be valid in 10 years? Probably not because the context will have changed, correct? Yes, absolutely. I think it's very important to always remind ourselves of the context when these strategies come out. And I think one of the very easy ways in which to illustrate this is to think about the initial statements or sentences 
in some of these documents. If we go back to the European security strategy, which has the title of a secure Europe in a better world, one of the initial sentences in it, pretty much not verbatim, is Europe has never been so prosperous, so secure, nor so free. If we fast forward to the implementation report that came out five years later, the subtitle now is providing security in a changing world. So there's a recognition here that things have moved on since 2003, and we need to focus a bit more on how to provide that security because of these changes. And again, if we fast forward to 2016 for the EU Global Strategy, which has the subtitle of Shared Vision, Common Action, a Stronger Europe, one of the first sentences in that document is, we live in times of existential crisis within and beyond the EU. Our union is under threat. Now compare that to the sentences associated with the European security strategy. You really have to ask yourself what happened between 2003 and 2016. And the short answer is the world changed. It's become increasingly geopolitical. And of course, through the interconnectivity, the limitations in resources, Europe now is again trying to find ways to deal with a new set of challenges that is quite different from what we were facing in 2003. So we have 13 years between the European security strategy and the global strategy. How are the two different other than perhaps the context? Well, actually, that makes them very different by default, I realize. But yeah, how are they different? If we look at it from a distance first, the European security strategy, of course, as the name suggests, was focusing very much on security threats. And because of that, it is a rather specific document. It's a rather short document if you go through it again. And it really places an emphasis then on the key threats and challenges, but also on the importance of effective multilateralism and other ways in which the EU can work to address those security threats and challenges. The EU global strategy on the other hand, as the name also implies, has a much broader outlook. So this is not only a longer document, but it is really trying to understand how the EU can be more comprehensive with respect to addressing not just the challenges, but there's a bit more here on the shared interests and principles, which then gives a bit more space to think about the need for a more credible union through greater investments, greater defense cooperation. Perhaps there's more uh, thinking about how the EU can better respond. So there's a lot of elements there about using the full potential of the Lisbon Treaty, something that you will not see, of course, in the ESS. And there's also quite a bit on how the EU must work as a joined-up union. So there's a lot more linkages between the internal and the external, which you would not have seen so much in the ESS in 2003. So again, contexts are quite different, but also the scope of the strategies themselves are different as well. So now we come to the present. For the listener who's not aware, the EU is currently undergoing the process of writing the strategic compass. Gustav, before we go in, we'll have another dedicated session next time, but can you perhaps explain briefly to the listener what the strategic compass is? 
So the strategic compass, a very good thing here, of course, is that the name gives quite a bit of understanding of what the goal really is. A compass gives us an indication of the direction. And this particular case, the strategic compass is following on the EU global strategy, but also on the security and defense implementation plan to give more political military guidance on the EU's level of ambition. It actually serves to give more coherence to the EU in the political military domain. And to do so, it has had different components to it. It's an ongoing process. But already now, there has been a threat analysis to try to understand, again, what are the issues and challenges facing the EU and how those may have changed. And that threat analysis has already been finalized, and it looks at challenges at the global, regional level, and also challenges specifically against the EU. And right now, we are in the process of having a strategic exchange or dialogue, and this is happening across the EU member states, because the strategic compass is an EU member state-driven process, even though the European External Action Service is the pen holder and uh, you will be talking to the actual pen holder soon. But let's remind ourselves then that as this strategic dialogue is happening, this is a very critical phase where the member states are able to compare notes and actually prepare the ground for the draft document, which should be ready by November of this year. And if everything goes according to plan, the adoption of this compass will happen in early 2022, around March. So the strategic compass does not replace the global strategy, but it's a following. How do we have to frame the, the strategic compass in comparison to the other strategic documents? How does it fit with strategic thinking? I think that depending on whom you ask, you'll get very different answers to this question. But from my perspective, I see the strategic compass as something that provides greater illumination and guidance for the EU global strategy. And it is very much following the pattern of the European security strategy, where you had more specific follow-on strategies that you also highlighted some of them, Florence. But in this particular case, this can be seen as an additional component that provides even more specificity and guidance really to sustain the EU global strategy and also provide greater scaffolding to the security and defense implementation plan, which really kickstarted a lot of the defense initiatives, such as permanent structured cooperation and the coordinated annual review on defense. So this strategic compass is pointing us in the right direction again. It's kind of like a couple of years later now, 2016, we're talking 2021, 2022, we need a little bit of additional guidance. And of course, the question then becomes, at what point will a new strategy be needed to replace the 2016 strategy? With the compass, the life extension of the EUGS can probably continue for a bit longer. But I would think that with COVID-19, the new securitization of new risks and challenges, looking towards NATO that is also thinking about a new strategic concept to replace its 2010 strategic concept, now that it looks at the NATO 2030 agenda, 
there might be a moment in the future also to revisit the EU global strategy. Well, thank you, Gustav, for sharing your insights today on strategy. We really set the ground, the basics here, because in the next two episodes, we go a little bit deeper. In the next episode, we'll have the pen holder of the strategic compass, Jean-Pierre van Aubel, with us, along with Daniel Fjord, our own in-house analyst. And we'll talk in the last episode about the link between foresight and strategy. How are they two related? They're similar, but they're not the same. So thank you for being with me, Gustav, today. And thanks to you for listening to us. 